Okay, well, last week we finished chapter one of the book of Revelation, and I always start out every study by claiming this promise of a blessing that's given in the first chapter, verse three. Blessed is the one who reads and those that hear and the words of this prophecy and heed the things which are written in it. It's the only book in the Bible a special blessing is provided for those that will do these three requirements. Now this is the first of seven blessings in the book of Revelation. We'll cover them as we move along. But some call it the Beatitudes in Revelation. Um, but uh, anything at all about chapter one that you find notable, interesting, surprising? Uh, there's a microphone if you have a question. We're taping this so it's good if you use a mic so everyone can hear. Plus. Yeah, it's working. Hey, that's good. Okay. Uh, uh, one, one of the key operative verses, if I could say that, in, in chapter 1 is um, Revelation, where it says, verse 7, uh, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, every eye shall see him, even they who pierced him, and all the, tri all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so, amen. That, that's a, that, that, that phrase could just permeate the entire book of Revelation, because it's talking about the seventh, seventh, second coming of Jesus, it speaks the fact he's coming back in clouds of glory. Remember when he ascended uh, on the Mount of Olives in Acts chapter 1, he ascended in the clouds visibly, and the two angels told the apostles, he's coming back in like manner. And we went way back into Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, um, where it says that almost for word, exactly this, they will look upon me whom they have pierced. Why is that interesting? That's in the Old Testament, or just that phrase, they will look upon me whom, whom they have pierced. It has some interesting connotations. Number one, what was capital punishment in, in the Old Testament, predominantly? Stoning or throw them off a cliff or these kind of things, predominantly stoning for blasphemy, etc. Not, not puncture, not piercing. And you'll see that also in Psalm 22. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Remember we looked at that, that messianic psalm 22, and there you see it in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. And then, of course, Jesus will repeat that. You know, that very famous trial uh, we looked at in Matthew. I'll just turn there for a second. But this, what in a sense, seals his fate in terms of the death penalty. And that was uh, Matthew chapter 22. Um, I'm sorry, it's actually 20. 26, Matthew 26, and this is where he's being interrogated, and we know during the Passion Week that Jesus will undergo six trials. Three of them are civil, three of them are religious. Remember, they keep taking him back and forth in front of Pilate, and then they go back. But now he's in front of the high priest, uh, verse 63, uh, but Jesus keeps silent. He always kept silent when they asked him these questions, this interrogation. And the high priest answered him and said, I put you under an oath. By the living God, tell us, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. So you have the high priest putting him under an oath, and Jesus will respond to that. He will respond to that. Remember, he came under the law, you know, fulfilled. So he's keeping the law here in a sense. He's respecting this question, even though it was a corrupt high priest. He says, Jesus said to him, "It is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man." sitting on the right hand of power and coming in clouds of glory. You see that? That's all through the scripture. That's a very important point. 
they, many people knew about his first coming. There was signs, there was predictions, there was prophecies. And John will introduce Jesus by saying what? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John chapter 1. Now what's John saying in Revelation? Behold, he comes in the, about his second coming. You understand this, this kind of uh, parallels going on here. So back to Revelation. Um, now we see Jesus. John sees Jesus in his full glory. And you get a lot of this description back in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 10. You know, his hair is white, his eyes are fire. Uh, he's got this garment on with a golden sash moving around the lampstands, which has priestly language to it. You know, the priest would move the, into the temple and he would take care of the showbread on the right. And then you'd have the lampstand, the menorah. He would check the light, the oil, you know. Fix it, make sure the lights are burning. Now you see our Lord moving in amongst these seven candles on, on, on these lampstands. John falls at his feet. Remember, John was probably the one closest to Jesus in his earthly ministry, right? I mean, he was with him three years in the boat, you know, on, at Mount of Olives, Gethsemane, and, and certainly even at the cross when Jesus will say, Son, behold your mother, mother, behold your son. But now he sees Jesus in all this radiant glory, and he falls. Like a dead man, he says. You'll see this is not uncommon when somebody has an encounter with God, like in Ezekiel 1 or Isaiah, uh, John. They just are undone. It's just too much. Uh, and he says, I love this, with just verse 17. And when I saw him, I'm in chapter 1, I fell at his feet as dead, but he laid his right hand on me. I like that. He touched him. The God of you know, all the universe in his full glory and power he reaches down and touches. And we talked about this last week. When you do a self-study in the Gospels, look at how many times Jesus touches somebody and who he touches. The leper, the woman with the issue of blood, uh, the, the dead girl, remember that the, the, certain, uh, the girl had died. People that others wouldn't touch, Jesus touches. It's, it's really touching, if I can be fair. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, I, I mean, it's something to be said about... Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. It, it reveals something of the God we serve, does it not? In, in, eternity cannot contain him, Solomon says. The heavens of the heavens above cannot contain you. Yet, he comes down and transcends, and he's so close, he can touch one who's hurting, one who's fearful, one who's marginalized. Okay, and then he says, he's got in his right hand seven stars, and he's walking. What, what does he say? What are the, are the candlesticks? What are the candlesticks? The churches, okay, now we're going to get into the churches today in chapters 2 uh, and 3 are the seven churches. And what are the seven stars in his right hand? Angels. And I said, I think it was last week, we, we, anytime Book of Revelation tells you what something means, you've got to grab onto that, okay, because there's going to be certain things we don't, that are not explained that clearly. And he says in verse 20, the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstand. The seven stars are the, are the angels, and the seven churches are the seven lampstands. So we know the lampstands are the churches, which makes sense, because a church is a light in a darkened world. Jesus calls you, I call you to be lights in the world. We're light and salt. Now there's good theologians will differ on this idea of messengers or angels. You translate angelos in the, in the Greek, it's messenger. And they say, maybe this is elders and pastors of the churches that are taking and carrying these messages to the church. Or, they're literal angels. 
And now that we talked a little about that last week. Angel or angel, singular or plural, is used over 50 times in the book of Revelation. And every time it's used, it's a spirit being. Okay? Um, we know that, how do we get this message in verse 1? It came from God the Father to who? To Jesus to who? To an angel, then to who? John, and then to who? Us. It's a very interesting, I'll compact it into verse 1. But there again, you see an angel being used as a messenger. Does that follow? I don't want to, there's, there's a lot of things as we go through the book of Revelation. I don't press too heavy, but I lay out different options. My thing, I tend to go with a certain consistent pattern that it's, an, it's a spirit being. It's an angel. Now we know that Jesus says, uh, don't harm little children for their angels are always beholding the presence of my heavenly father. Uh, we know in chapter one of Hebrew that angels are ministering spirits to believers. Uh, we know that angel helped release Peter. Remember he was in jail that one time, he opened the door. We know that angels invade or you know, enter in. We don't look for them, we certainly don't pray to them, anything like this. But this angelic activity, particularly towards believers, is not out of scriptural realm. Any thought on that? Again, I'm not pressing it too hard, I'm just offering a couple different explanations. Okay, that gets us into this whole thing with the seven churches. Now, uh, this is our Lord coming. Um, it, I find this very interesting. One, chapter 1, it's like it's front end loaded with heavy theology, the deity of Jesus Christ. Just like John chapter 1 in the gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, all this. But the first thing he's going to address is not about judgment on the world system, the downfall of Satan, a new heaven, a new earth. The first thing he's going to address is what? Local churches. Local churches. How important do you think local churches are to Jesus? Now we're going to talk about this when we get into this whole study, because it's going to take a couple of weeks to do the seven churches. He, it, it says in Ephesians chapter 5, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And what gave himself for the church? He has a love for the church. Okay? He, he loves, and I'm not talking church universal. I'm talking church local. These are specific churches. What country is this today? Turkey. It's Turkey. Okay? And, and if you look at them, they form almost like a semicircle. Remember, he's walking amongst the lampstands. This is almost like, a he's like contained within the circle of these churches. And many historians think that this was actually a postal route of the Roman Empire that connected each of these cities. You know, anyone that's been to Rome or that part of the world, you know the Roman road system is incredible. I mean, it stands today. You know, so they think that this could have been a route system, that these, all these cities were connected. And notice it starts with uh, the church with Ephesus. Now, I want to just put this here. It says in 1 Peter chapter 4, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins first with us, what shall be the end of them that obey not the gospel of God? We'll see that later in the book of Revelation. But it starts first where? With us, the church. Just like book of Revelation. God starts first by looking, examining, critiquing, uh, accommodating, you know, complimenting, as well as accusing and, and offering a remedy. It'll say in 1 Timothy, if I, Paul speaking to Timothy, 
if I am delayed, you will know how, God, how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church. There's no confusion there. There's no ambiguity there. That's his household. We're fam- Two great institutions that God's create and established. Number one, number one is the family. Number two is the church. Now, now you can say, well, he established governments because he gives governments the right to exercise power and authority, Romans 13, etc. But I'm talking high detail, the family and the church. And when I say church, I mean local churches. What are the two institutions most attacked in popular culture and society today? The family and the church. Okay, we're going to see that. Any comment on any of this? Okay. Now... Here, here's how it works. Um, Jerusalem is the start of the church. If you study uh, Acts, that, that's their headquarters. Uh, you know, up until at least to chapter 8, verse 1, when persecution comes and everybody's scattered, except the apostles tend to stay there in Jerusalem. Uh, 1 8, chapter 1 8, in the Acts of the Apostles, Jesus says, Go to Jerusalem, be endued with power, and then go what? Be witnesses where? In all the world they tended to stay in Jerusalem, by and large, okay? But persecution forced, shook the nest and forced them out. I had an old missions pastor who says, either we believe and obey Acts 1-8, or maybe God will give us Acts 8-1. You know, kind of shake the nest with persecution. Then they go out. But um, we're going to see when they have the famous council uh, where they decide what's going to be required of Gentile believers, that'll be in Jerusalem, and that's going to be Acts chapter 15. So there's the center of the start, the launch pad. Even critics of Christianity will say it's very interesting that the apostles and believers stayed in the very city that they killed their leader. Do you ever think about that? They didn't go back up north. They didn't go into Syria. They didn't go. They stayed right there, and they probably pointed to that empty tomb. They stayed there. They weren't moving. And then later, we know Peter gets the special call to Cornelius up in Caesarea, first missionaries in Antioch, you'll see that later in the book of Acts, that's where believers are first called Christians. Tarsus, who's from Tarsus? Paul. Paul. Okay, and then here's where a lot of the churches, this is really the launch pad uh, of early Christianity. Am I right, Mark? It, Turkey is, Asia Minor is the, is the, is the uh, area that we're going to see in a moment, they focus on a lot of activity in present-day Turkey. And here you see the seven churches. At this time, John is here on the island of Patmos, and he's banished. It's like, well, anybody been to Alcatraz or something? You know, it's like you didn't kill the prison, you just put him, uh, political prisoners you put on this place, and that's where he'll receive the book of Revelation. Any question on any of this? I'm just kind of establishing what's going on here. Okay. Now, when we study the seven churches, it kind of breaks down to an interesting kind of seven-point outline. You'll see this is rather consistent. Number one, they'll address a specific church, like we're going to see today, uh, to the angel of the church at Ephesus, right? So it addresses it. It gives a description of Jesus from chapter one. It's going to list one of the attributes that describe Jesus in chapter one. Like here it says, uh, in, to the church at Ephesus, to the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. See, that goes back to chapter one. You'll see this is consistent. Uh, Jesus examines, he gives an account of the spiritual conditions of the church. He's walking amongst the churches and he's examining them. You know, almost like a physician, if you will. 
What, what are they doing right? What challenges are there? What are they doing wrong? Um, two churches will have nothing wrong said about them, only commendation. Two will have nothing good said about them. We'll see that as we traffic through this thing. But he's looking, and then he gives a, commend, a commendation, you're doing something very good, or a condemnation, you've got to change something. There's something amiss or malignant going on in the church. Then there's an exhortation in view of the conditions of the church. In other words, repent or return or don't hold to that doctrine. Uh, you know, he gives some kind of an admonition or advice. A promise to those who overcome. Now, this is a very important thing. It's not that they're just going to survive. He wants them to thrive. And they're in the midst of big-time persecution, right? And, and one of the major themes of, of, of the book of Revelation is that we will be so full of hope, it will motivate us towards holiness. Does that make sense? We're going to be so full of hope, and the hopeful message here, despite all the persecution and tribulation and all these things that are going to be coming down, but because of what, that God is in control, and, he, and he, he's, he's, he cares for us, he's concerned, with, and there's reward for faithful service, so filled with hope, it leads to, uh, I'm sorry about that, to, uh, to be motivated towards holiness. That's why it says in 1 John, as many as have this hope within them, what's the blessed hope? Or what's the great hope? Jesus coming again, right? That's the blessed hope we look for. As many as have this hope within them, purify themselves. Purify themselves. That's why he used the image of a bride, waiting for the bridegroom, getting everything ready, and you know, getting everything in, you know, without spot or blemish. So the book of Revelation, whatever church age you're in, that message is consistent. Does that make sense? That we're motivated to persevere, to be patient, to, to, to be overcomers, because we have this, this great reward coming, this great pin. Um, and finally, a command to pay attention to the voice of the Spirit. Now, what's interesting here, that's, that's kind of like to everybody. Uh, the, the, the letter is addressed to a specific church, but each letter will end with this idea. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. Now, that same language is used in, when Jesus is given the parables in Matthew chapter 13. Remember, parables were meant, were meant to reveal stuff about the kingdom of God, but they were also meant to conceal that those who have ears won't hear, those that have eyes won't see. People that don't want it, they won't get it. But those that really want to understand God's truths, uh, he'll reveal it to them. But when he says, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear, that's kind of like a heads up. Does this anything here have application to our life today? Does anything here have application to our church or other churches? And I think we're going to find out th there are things here that have modern day, present day application. Somebody have their hand up? Somebody's got to ask a question so I can get a drink of water. Okay. <laughs> so John, mm. the, the entire second chapter of Revelation is all red. Yes. So, you know, but we know it's not, you know, Christ saying it at that point. Oh, oh. <laughs> so, I'm just, so I'm just curious about that, John. You know, uh, that's John talking about what Christ said. That's John. Uh, yeah, good question, Mike. This is this is the only letters that Jesus writes. Do you know what I'm saying? This is not like if you study the letter to the Colossians, the letter to the Ephesians. All Scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit. You know, is given that you know. 
for our edification, for our profitability. But this is the only letters that God, that Jesus said, he said them, they were just recorded, but what John's saying is, is direct words from Jesus. Does that make sense? John was just the stenographer, if you will, the secretary. And about six times in the book, it'll say what you saw, write. What you saw, write. You know, this, but the, the widespread letter is it's word for word uh, about what Jesus is saying. When John is speaking, it's not. It's not our Lord speaking. It's John. Then it goes back to the regular script. Dark. Anyone else on that point? Well, yeah, I mean, in a sense, again, going back to chapter 1, the whole revelation comes from God the Father to Jesus Christ, to an angel, to John, to us. Where the angel is involved in that, I'm not, I'm not sure. I mean, wait till we really get into the book of Revelation. There's a lot I'm not sure. You know, I mean, <laughs> we're going to try to let the Word of God explain the Word of God. And a lot of that is going back to the Old Testament because it draws heavily on the Old Testament. Somebody else on this, on this topic? Okay, so uh, let's look at this church in uh, Ephesus and why this is the first one. Uh, Ephesus, the ancient world, Ephesus was a center of travel and commerce, situated on the Aegean Sea at the mouth of the Caesar River. The city was one of the greatest seaports in the Roman Empire. According to some sources, in the first century, Ephesus was second only to Rome as a cosmopolitan center of culture and trade. It had a population of approximately uh, a quarter million people at the time that the early church ministers. This was an extremely strategic church for early Christianity. We'll look into that in one second. Um, now, how many have been to Ephesus? I know some people in here have been to Ephesus. Okay. Um, here's one of the famous market roads that have no doubt Paul, the apostles, we're going to see they stayed there several years. Uh, they would dispatch some of their best teachers to go to Ephesus to teach. Um, this is the theater, holding upwards of 25,000 people. It was built during the Hellenistic period, which predates Rome, renovated by several Roman empires. This is the one where Paul will go in. Believers will go in there. Paul wants to go in there, and other believers forbid him to go in because there's like a mob, a riot going on in there. Uh, there's a lot of uh, persecution. This is the famous library of Celsus. Uh, the style is believed to be standard architect. Uh, they said it had uh, about uh, 15,000 scrolls. It was a famous library. Not as famous as the library at Alexandria, but nevertheless, one of the third or fourth greatest libraries in the ancient world. Uh, now this was key, was the Temple of Artemis. Considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, Ephesus Temple of Artemis, also Diana, remember? Was dedicated to goddess of the hunt, but it's really big on fertility, and all, we'll, we'll, we'll get into that maybe a little. Only the foundation and one column remains of this temple of the original. Here's what artists conceived that this was. This was the center of Ephesus, was this temple uh, to, to Artemis or Diana. You know, this was the center. And, and why were the people so upset when Paul came in and people were coming to Christ and getting converted? There was a reason. Do you remember what it was? They quit buying the idols. They kept buying the little silver idols of Artemis, and it was a great trade. The silversmiths were going out of business because people no longer, they didn't want idols anymore. They had they didn't need an idol. And uh, so this was comparison of these two, let me see. Uh, gives you an idea of these two kind of uh, monuments. I mean, this temple was something, like I said, it was, a, it was considered one of the seven greatest wonders of the world. Now, I want to just back up a little bit and show you back to, uh... okay. So that, that, we're gonna look at this first church. Now, Ephesus, 
If you turn to Acts, I just want to get a little background information, then go into the letter, how important this church really is. It's the only church of the seven churches in Revelation that has actually has a letter in the New Testament. Like, we don't have a letter to Smyrna, we don't have a letter to Pergamos, we don't have a letter to the Church of Philadelphia. We do have a letter to the Church of the Ephesians, which kind of gives us a little bit of a window. Uh, but turn to Acts chapter 18, I'll just kind of give a background information on this uh, group, so to speak, these churches that were established there. In uh, chapter 18, the, um, they can date this thing pretty good because earlier on in 18, you get the persecution of the Jews being thrown out of Rome. And there you see Priscilla and Aquila. Remember, they had a, there was this edict and they had to leave. And they, they will end up going to Ephesus. And so in chapter 18 of Acts of the Apostle, it will say, um, Paul, verse 19, and he came to Ephesus and he left them there. That is Priscilla and Aquila, who were co, not only co-workers, but co-teachers with him. He entered the synagogue and resonated with the Jews, reasoned with the Jews. And then it will say, um, he, he says, I must, verse 21, by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed to Ephesus. Now, what Priscilla and Aquila will do here in verse 24, it says now, the same chapter 18 of Acts, now a certain Jew named Apollos, born in Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scripture, came to Ephesus. And he was really good with Old Testament, right? And uh, he studied. But the only thing he knew was the baptism of John, which was essentially what? Yeah. Baptism of yeah. repentance. Not the new birth, but the, the repent, you know, just repent and get things right with God. And it says, I like this, verse 26. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. You know, John's baptism and repentance. Then the baptism of a believer when they accept Jesus Christ. And um, when he desired to cross Acacia, the brethren wrote exhorting the disciples to receive him. And he greatly helped those who believed through the grace of God. And verse 28, for he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. So what was his prominent basic scripture source? Old Testament. Now, now the penny drops, so to speak. He's, he's very good teaching from the scriptures, it says, you know. And, but once he knows that Jesus proves the Old Testament, then he's on fire. This guy will become a famous teacher in the early church, Apollo. Okay. I don't know. I think this is the only... You know, back then they had what was called like itinerant preachers. You know, they had people that were really well-versed and they would get disciples around them. They didn't necessarily have to be priests, but they were really... You had all kinds of people. When you study Acts, you got sorcerers going around, you got itinerant preachers going around, you got the Judaizers coming. So you got all kinds of people. Uh, and Apollo, now, um, now they set up base camp in Ephesus, chapter 19. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus and he found the disciples there. And that's when he, what he'll, just quickly, what he'll do is he'll go into the synagogue, verse 8 of chapter 19. He went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. Paul always does this and he uses, in the synagogue, what scriptures is he using? Old Testament. You'll see that. It's very consistent all through the book of Acts. Why is this so important today? Or is it important today? It's not a trick question. 
<laughs> I'm not paying you guys or taking money of you. No other religion, no other holy book, no other philosophy book has what we have in this source of authority, the Bible. It's two books, it's one story. It has a continuum, what they call a meta-narrative, one story that has a beginning, it reaches a climactic moment, what Jesus calls this hour or my hour, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and then a continuation uh, through Acts of the Apostles, the Epistles, even to this very day, in a sense. But that storyline has types, shadows, predictions with high specificity, contains 600 years, 1,000 years, 1,500 years out, that all converge on the person of Jesus Christ. Nobody has that type of proof system. Does that make sense? Because if you ask people where they get their faith, where do most people get their faith or their religion? From their parents, am I right? Generally speaking, who got it from? their parents you see so you can't argue that with people that any more than the jewish people would say we have abraham as our father you know they would appeal to this legacy this, this inheritance so to speak well that anybody can do that other people can appeal to a religious experience you know uh, somebody that really genuinely comes to christ they they can give their testimony which we should do of how we came to christ and how it transformed our lives but I've talked to Buddhists that had incredible mystical experiences that goes alongside with Buddhist doctrine. Okay? Experience doesn't validate it. As valid that it is, it's good, don't get me wrong. But just like when I talked to some Mormon elders once, they came to my house. <laughs> and, and they said, I said, well, how do you know that's true, the Book of Mormon and Joseph Smith being the prophet? They said, well, you pray to God. It says in James chapter 1, you pray to God and ask him for wisdom and give you wisdom. If you start reading the Book of Mormon, you're going to get what they call a burning in the bosom. Your heart will get strangely warmed. I said, let me ask you a question. When Paul preached at Lystra, and I think it was in uh, uh, Acts chapter uh, 10, did, after he left, did every, all those people that heard him pray that they would get a burning in the bosom or a warm feeling in their heart? No. They got out the Old Testament scriptures and verified what Paul's message is all about. You do not validate truth with experience. You validate truth by truth. Does this make sense? We're in a day and age where primary Christian doctrines, foundational Christian doctrines are being attacked. What are some of the most primary pillars that support our faith? What are just some of them? Just yell, that we can't, it'll collapse if we don't have this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word became flesh. That's a big one. Jesus is God. Jesus incarnated, you know, in the flesh. Michael. Pardon? The Trinity. Okay, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You know, not three gods, one God, co-eternal. And what? Resurrection. Death, burial, resurrection. Physical resurrection. There's denominations today that are saying it wasn't a physical resurrection, but the idea of love or truth can never be kept down, and it'll always... Not if, you know, I'm just saying, these things are coming in. A coming judgment, a heaven, a hell, the second return of Jesus Christ. The church, the church is a, is a doctrine in the New Testament when Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And then you see through the book of Acts, Jesus says, I will build my church. He's the master builder, but he gives us the blueprint in the book of Acts. Requirements for leaders and pastors, how to discipline, how to have church order, how to celebrate the Lord's Supper. On and on and on and on and on, right? I only say that is because we have to know this 
I, I think that's one of the things why Mark is initiating that st different modules starting in January to get us solid in these different areas. Any thoughts on this before we move forward? Yes, please. Um, Right. Don't forget, John was baptized. We don't know how long before Christ, but people would travel to the different feasts in Israel, you know, like for Passover, and then they go back to their home countries of Syria or, yeah, here, these different. And they took back the idea that there was this man preaching that we should repent and get ready for the coming one. Remember, John was, he was a uh, preparer, the forewalk. Uh, walking forward, preparing the people, but they didn't, they didn't receive Christ yet. You see, so that's what they're explaining here. Now, Paul stays here, back to Acts, and he will, um, it'll say he, he continued there for two years, verse 10. He, con he continues in Ephesus for two years. I mean, this was an important city. He'll put some of his best people there, Aquila, Priscilla, in 1 Timothy, he's going to leave Timothy behind there. They invest heavily in this city because in missions, we are always looking for cities, big cities, particularly coastal cities like New York or Los Angeles or London. You know, and in missions, we call the big cities people pumps. That's where people come together to trade ideas, university, library. They're open, you know, they're coming away from the farm, they're coming to the big city, they're more open to ideas. Plus, if you can get converts there, well, you're getting tradespeople, you're getting soldiers, they're leaving from there, and they can take the message to other countries. Does that make sense? So Ephesus was big, they, they wanted this place. Okay, let's um, see, he encounters all kinds of th stuff in chapter 19. Miracles happen, then he encounters demonic spirits, um, I, you know, it, it, verse 17 says, This became known both to Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus. Fear fell on them. This is after they judged that sorcerer who was trying to do miracles in Jesus' name. And many believed, and then verse 19, And many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together, burned them in the sight of all, and they counted up the value, totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. The word of the Lord grew mightily. Uh, and, and so now it says in verse 22, so they, they sent to Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Aristos, and he stayed, stayed in Asia. And so then after that, there's going to be this big riot because that's where the silversmith is losing their business. They can no longer make these idols. I mean, they're making idols, but nobody's buying the idols, okay? They, they, they have this big riot, and Paul's got to get out of there. Uh, believers go into the arena, they get arrested, and then they get freed. I won't get into that detail. But I'm just, the point being that this church at Ephesus is very strategic. I think it's interesting that our Lord opens up with this in chapter 2 of Revelation. So it says here, back to Revelation chapter 2. Okay, he says, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. So now we see... He's, he's taken that attribute or that characteristic of Jesus from chapter 1. Every one of the seven churches will have some characteristic, you know, as part of the introductory to the letter to that given church. He says, I know your works. That's very important. He, he knows our works. You know, he's very aware. Matter of fact, remember it says he has eyes like fire. You know, he, he can penetrate. He, can, he sees through, so to speak, if you will. He knows, but he, he does focus on this idea of works. Now notice this church. 
I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. Just that verse too. And you tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. What, what are the character? How would you describe that church? Just from that one verse, verse 2. What's some of the characteristics or attributes that that church has? It's discerning because it can, you know, it can weigh out. It has that discernment to know, you know, who's coming, you know, who's coming in to teach, who's going to be the pastor. Matter of fact, Paul will even say in chapter 19 and 20, when he gives his farewell address to the elders of uh, Ephesus, he says, I know when I leave, wolves are going to come in. Wolves are going to come in, you know, into the, into the flock. He says, I want you to beware. So they can discern false teaching. False teaching. And, and this is so critical. <laughs> do we have to have this discernment today? How do we, how do we discern false teaching? That's our plumb line. You know, the word of God. Because many ideas may come in and they might look good or sound good, but they could be off. You know, that, that, that's, that's how, you know, you start off with an inch and you end up with a mile in terms of error. They get in, and if we're not discerning people, I mean, that's one of the things of leadership or pastors is they're shepherds. Well, one thing a shepherd did was not just guide and lead and provide and feed, but he also looked out. You know, he had that, like, discernment, you know, like, you can, like, almost smell a wolf, you know, and he protected the flock. And this is a big thing in our day and age, too, is it not? You know? And we'll get into this when we get into the other churches. Would you say, what else? Okay, it's a discerning church. What else? It sounds like they reached out to help others. Yeah, works. Remember Jesus says, let your good works shine before men that they might look at them and glorify your heavenly Father. So they were a church about good works. What else did they do? Patience. Patience. They're hardworking. They tested apostles, uh, false apostles that were roaming around. You found them to be liars. Verse 3, you have persevered, you have patience, you have labored for my namesake, and you've not become weary. They're not a short-distance runner. Okay, They're in it for the long haul. Would you say, based on that, this is a good church? This church is hitting it. I mean, they're like, you know, this... This church was really good. If you looked at their bulletin and their activities and everything else going on, you would say this is a really good church. It is a good church in, in many ways. But, <laughs> nevertheless, verse 4. Well, that's a good point because now a couple interesting things going here what, to, to your question, Michael. That's when Jesus will say, nevertheless, I, verse four, I have this against you that you have left your first love. Now, um, based on what we read from a um, human point of view, they're a good church. They're, they're, they're doing it. You know, they're, they're works and patience and they can, they have discernment. They have, it sounds like they have right doctrine, but uh, they've left their first love, you see. Now, when you go, this letter was probably written 30 years after the letter to the church of Ephesians. The, the Ephesian letter was written by Paul. If you study the letter to the Ephesians, you'll notice something that's different than the other letters, like to the Corinthian church, the church at Galatia. You know, anybody know what that is? 
There's something unique about that letter to the church at Ephesus. There's no rebuke. There's no criticism. You know, the, the church at Galatia, they're moving this way, and Corinth is very carnal, and the one over here, you know, everyone's got an issue Paul has to correct, not Ephesus. They're high. They call it the letter to the Ephesians is the Swiss Alps, the spirituality of the epistles. He's teaching spiritual warfare, you're standing in Christ, all of these really profound doctrines. 30 years later, well, turn with me just for a moment. Look at, look at Ephesians church. What's the last thing Paul says to them? Uh, almost the last verse. Uh, Ephesians chapter 6. Verse 23. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 23. Peace to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with you. And all those who what? Love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. That's the last thing Paul says. Approximately 30 years, maybe a generation later, Jesus is examining this church. And what are they lacking? Love. The very thing Paul admonished them to do. What I think, I don't know, I think this, this church was doing it right in so many different ways they were on autopilot. They were just clicking along. And sometimes we can get so caught up with the work of the Lord, we forget the Lord of the work. Do we not? I mean, things are moving along, things are going. I think this can happen in any relationship. You can have a married couple that's really outwardly looking good. They're paying their bills, raising their children, do that. But the, the, it could be love is no longer there. It's really a literally high-level functioning partnership. Or a French, you can see the same thing. Or with siblings. Can you not? But you lost, what he's saying here, you lost the mainspring of motivation, which is love. Why were they doing these things? I guess because they've done them in the past. So they keep, but it's interesting going back to Ephesians, I mean, uh, Revelation, where Jesus will say, um, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. So there we have this um, correction, this uh, Notice Jesus does not want to destroy this church. He does not want to say, I'm finished with you. He wants to restore. You see, he wants to bring back. He's not, in, in, this is the, the God we serve. He's, he, he's like a father, the prodigal father who wants, he's not going to judge the son when he comes back to him. He wants to receive him. So he's admonishing this church to do this. And what does he say here? He says, remember therefore where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. Or else, I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from this place, unless you repent. So he, he, he's saying this basically, repent, uh, uh, return, and repeat. Remember where, where you came from. Remember the way it was in the beginning. I guess if you were talking to a married couple, remember how it was when you got engaged. Remember how it was at the beginning when you got married. When, you know, go back and then repent. Repent from what? Repent that their love grew cold. Repent that maybe they didn't even think about how much Jesus loved them and how much they should love Jesus in return. You see? And he's saying, yes, please, George. So would you say the problem was their motivation? Was what? Doing what they're supposed to, but 
Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, that, 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 that we, we, look, Jesus loved us while we were yet sinners, right? He, he, he says, yeah, if you love me, keep my commandments. And then he'll say, this is my commandment. What? Love, singular, love one another. Now, is this love, love for God, love for one another, brothers, or love for the lost? Yeah, I think if, if we get the first one right, I think the others can fall in line. It's like when I teach this in Southeast Asia where poor Thai people have no Bible background. I use my shirt. I said, if you get the top button right, chances are the other buttons fall in line. You get the top button wrong, ain't none of these going to fall in line, right? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then all these other things shall be... They get it. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, but they, it, we got to put love first. And... What is love? I mean, yeah, Jim, before you, you're going to answer that question first. <laughs> <laughs> well, it seems to me the big one is uh, Laodicea, uh, that uh, lukewarm church, neither hot nor cold, right. and spew them out of his mouth. Well, we'll get to that. That's the last church of the seven that nothing good is said about it. But we'll get to that yeah. as we kind of move through the. It's a good point. Yes, Jim? It mentions that uh, he'll remove the lampstand. Right. But it doesn't mention the uh, one of the seven stars. The angel went with the church as well, but there's no mention of the, the stars. Well, wh- let me put it this way. Where is the lampstand? Where are the churches on earth? Where are stars? In heaven. That's why you often see stars used of uh, angels. I think it's in Revelation chapter 9. It sees a star falling, and then it says he had the key to the bottomless pit. So stars, if it is indeed angels, they're angelic. They're not going to be affected by this, if that indeed is what the messengers are. But what does it mean to remove the lampstand? Huh? What does it mean to remove it? Is there a church in Ephesus today? No. I mean, how many know of denominations in your lifetime that in a sense have lost their lampstand? See, the, we'll cover this next week when we get into the church. Usually the failings are coming not from the outside, but it's from the inside. And it's usually either moral or doctrinal. It's either moral or doctrinal. Okay? They know what they're facing outside. You got the Romans, you got the Judaizers, you got the pagans, you got a cult, you got superstition. You got all that going on out there. But he's concerned what's going on in here, particularly what's going on in here. You know, somebody else had their hand up on this? But... You see what I'm saying? He's, he's going back to the real... Like, kind of in Pastor Mark's sermon today, the cripple was coming down. He might think his big problem, he can't walk. But Jesus says his primary problem was what? Inside him was a sin. After that, Jesus says, pick up the bed and walk. You know, he's dealing with primary issues here. You know, But I, I think this speaks to us, that we each one of us examine our own hearts. Why do we do what we do? You know, we could do it for the praise of men. You know, Jesus says you can do that, but you've already received your reward. He says, when you give, don't let your left hand see what your right hand's giving. My Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. When you pray, you know. So this idea, Jesus is looking to the primary issues. Just, and that's why it's so neat when he comes to two churches, he finds no criticism. But they seem like really meager, impoverished churches that we wouldn't think are in our yardstick. I think, I think we tend to measure yardstick, even in a church, with success. See, 
it's just natural. Whereas I think the Lord measures it by significance. You know, what's your, what's your motive? You, do you give a cup of cold water in my name because you're motivated by my love? You know, somebody else had something on this. We're doing good. We're almost done with this church in heaven. Okay. It really long. Okay. Okay. He says, um, but to remove the lampstand is an, is an admonition and a warning to all of us. You know, I mean, my wife and I have been involved in missions for the past 35 years. And I got to tell you, at one time, England was a ascending country of missionaries. I mean, historically legendary. Look what's going on there today. Now, I'm not saying their lampstand was removed from taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, but it's never been like that. If you ask me, from what I know, it's South Korea. It's parts of India. It's, it's, uh, it's parts of Brazil now. It's parts of Iran. If anybody know what's going on in Iran with church growth, see, you, you, can, you can see it. Do you ever see these Google Maps of the world with lights? You know, you, know, you, you look at Chicago or Cleveland or New York, and it's real bright. And other, Look at North Korea, looks like two or three people have flashlights down. But uh, then you see South Korea, it's all lit up. Well, I think that's true spiritually, too. The lights, there's lights, there's bright light. Just like our community, there's bright, right? Okay. Pardon me? Our country where it started in New England, that's where our mission program should be. Exactly right. Yeah, that, that was the great, uh, well, the great revivals were there, the great awakenings there, and the greatest missionary movements were from there. Yeah, it's, it's, it moves, you know. Uh, we'll, we'll look at that when we get into the whole thing, how the Holy Spirit moved from the Middle East up through Turkey. It starts, sweeps Europe, and then the British Isles, and then comes to the east coast of America, the great uh, Methodists and the Pilgrim, you know, going across the United States, California. And now it seems like it's going to the Orient, South Korea, China, these different, and it's sweeping back towards Jerusalem. Uh, I mean, if you, you kind of... Somebody else on any Okay, now, um, so that threat is there, but again, Jesus says in verse 5, unless you repent, he, he, he wants us, it says in the Old Testament, even for sinners, God says, as I live it, saith the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Matthew chapter 25, Jesus says, hell was not created for man, but for who? The devil and his angels. But man wants to go there, you know, that's, that's prerogative. So too, here Jesus says, here's, here's the remedy, or here's, here's what I want you to do. But then he says, but this I have that you hate, but this you have. In other words, this is a good thing, verse 6, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Isn't it interesting? They hated what Jesus hated. We're going to look at this in a bit. But we should love what Jesus loves. We should hate what Jesus hates. That's a strong word that people don't realize that's use of our Lord, that there's things he hates, there's things he loves, there's things that please him, there's things that grieve him. Um, what I'd like to do is, is cover this topic when we get to the church of Pergamos, um, because in verse 15 he'll say, you also have those that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which things I hate. So the church here in Ephesus is not tolerating this, this doctrine of the Nicolaitans. The church at Pergamos is embracing this. And we'll look at that, what, what a possibility, explanation might be. Uh, what are the Nicolaitans? Okay. Uh, it's very serious. And I, I, think, I think there are applications for our day today. Maybe not exactly like it was then, but my belief is that these seven churches have things going on, uh, both to the plus 
and to the minus in terms of challenges uh, for churches throughout all time in every place, even though they're written specifically to these seven churches in a specific city at a specific time and place that they could understand what the message meant. Any thoughts on any of this? I'll, I'll wrap it up in just a second here. Okay. So he says here, um, uh, verse 7, Now he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural, not just to the church here at Ephesus, but it also goes into the, not just a group, but a singular you know, individual, he who has an ear. Uh, that kind of tells me uh, that's for all of us. Is there something that our Lord is teaching us through all of this? You know, is there any, and again, Jesus uses this uh, um, when he's given a, a very um, significant spiritual teaching, like with John the Baptist. Remember when he was being executed and they came to Jesus and says, uh, uh, we thought Elijah had to come first before the Messiah came. And Jesus says, if you can handle this, uh, or if you have ears to receive this, John was Elijah. Remember he says that in uh, John chapter 8, I believe. You know, it's a heavy, but if you can get it, this is, this is what the truth is. He'll do the same thing with the kingdom parables in Matthew 13. He says, he that hath ears, uh, let, him have it, uh, uh, let him hear what's being said. It's not, a lot of people just don't get it. They don't want to get it, maybe. It was, it was Blaise Pascal that says, God provides enough light that, that those that want to see will, but enough shadow that those that don't won't. God, there's so much light out there, even on a given day like this, just with creation, let alone the Word of God, let alone turn on the radio, 103.3. I'm not pushing my station. Well, I mean, <laughs> but I, I don't know how many listen to 103.3. There's so much solid teaching daily. You know, we are so highly resourced people. And Jesus says, to whom much is given, much is required. You know, we have been given so much, you know, in terms of not just abundance, you know, as we approach this Thanksgiving week, but just in terms of spiritual resources. It is not like this in parts of the world that I've traveled in my ministry. No way. To have a concordance and to have maybe a dictionary, a word, that, that's a lot up in certain places I was in Northern Thailand. You know, they just have it. Somebody has a question. Yes, ma'am. Right. Right. Let's. I'll close on this, but turn to First Corinthians chapter two for a moment. It'll go right to your question, though. It's a good question. First Corinthians chapter two. Um, First Corinthians chapter two, verse twelve. It's two believers. He says, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. That is to say, the Holy Spirit. That we might know the things that have been freely given to us, right? By God, that, to be the word of God. These things also speak not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but what the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. In a sense, that's what we're doing. That's what Paul did. That we're looking spiritual things with spiritual things. Particularly when we get into Revelation, we look at the Old Testament. 
But to do that, you have to have the Holy Spirit. Now look what it says in verse 14. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are what to him? Do you think this is a Bible is a joke to a lot of people? It is. They think it's, it's preposterous. Yeah, you believe in God, and he created the animals, and he's good. They just think it's foolishness. I told a story when I lived in Thailand, we used to have a guy come from Manchester University, a PhD, a physicist, and he used to, on his summers, he would dig nearby where we lived in the fields to look at little archaeology, little pottery or something, I don't even know. But my buddy and I used to take him to eat. He was the only guy. We take, his name was Roy, and he was hardcore atheist. And we'd say, Roy, what do you really think of what we believe? Because my buddy and I, he was a missionary. And he goes, I'll tell you, because we were paying for the meal, he goes, I'll tell you the truth. He says, what do you guys believe about Christianity? I think it's foolishness. We said, really? He goes, yeah. I said, you know, Roy, that's what the Bible said you were going to say. He said, he said, what do you mean? I go, read this, Roy. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit. They are foolishness to him. Nor can they know them. They don't have the Spirit of God. The Bible is the only book in the world you have to know the author before you understand the message. That's why PhDs and very highly educated people, this is a joke. But to us, it's life and breath and bread and guidance and compass and, you know, it's all these things. But you can't, if you don't, if you don't have the nature to accept these spiritual things, you know, I could, if I had a dog, I could teach it how to fetch a newspaper in the morning, but I can't teach him how to read it. It's not in his nature. It's not in his nature. But when you come to Christ, and I can go around this room, all of a sudden, that which you weren't interested before, the Bible, it comes alive. Am I right? Does that answer your question, Melanie? Now, now, having said that, but there is still levels of how much we understand the Word of God. First Peter chapter 1 says, As a newborn baby, desire the sincere milk of the Word. Then Jesus says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word uttered by the mouth. And, Peter, and Paul says to the uh, church at Corinth, I wanted to feed you strong meat, but you couldn't handle it. So there are levels of understanding and spiritual digestion for uh, you know all believers at different levels. Any closing thought on any of this? So do you ask a non-believer or someone who's curious, oh Joyce, that's such a good question. It has to be recorded for posterity. From what you're saying, then I would say it's up to you to ask because God will supply. So when you see that person that's searching and they have their doubts, um, because it, what you say it sounds like that God supplied. He answers our prayers. He will, if you want to know, He wants to tell. Oh you. yeah, sure. <laughs> the Bible clearly says if you seek Him, if you seek Him with all your heart, you will find Him. Jesus says, whomsoever will come to me, I will in no wise refuse. God, God's uh, movement, so to speak, impulse, is toward to be reconciled. It wasn't Adam that went looking for God when he sinned. It was God that was going in the cool of the day saying, Adam, where are you? you know, that, that's God's love. That's love, is to go out and extend oneself to reconcile one to, to himself. Yeah, we'll pick this up next week. Good question. No, any one last question? No last question. Yes, please. Um, why do they hate the Nicolaitans? 
Why, why what? Why do they hate the Nicolaitans? Yeah, like I said, I'd like to do that when we come down to, is it verse 16? Um, uh, verse 15. The church at Pergamos, uh, Jesus says, Thus you also have those that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which things I hate also. I'd like to discuss that when we get to that church. I'm not putting it off, but I want to show that the church at Ephesus rejected it. The church at uh, Pergamos uh, embraced it. I'll show you a couple explanations of what the Nicolaitans are uh, from different sources, and I think you can glean kind of what may have been going on at that time. Any other? Yes, please, Cynthia. Uh huh. Yes. As far as this particular class is concerned, and then what you were teaching for J time. Yes. Can you address your intentions on how this? Well, the rate we're going, we should be finished by 2020. Okay. Somebody asked me, did I think the Lord was going to return first, or were going to Um. What the church? Um. What they're what they're going to put in for that program that will go. How's that going? It's going July 12th for two months, January for two months, and it's going to be on those uh, different uh, topics, syllabus. And here will be the, the, what I call the meta-narrative, two books, one story, how it begins in Genesis, how it comes, you know. Uh, so therefore, uh, December 15th, we'll have our last class for this period of time for Revelation because of the Christmas New Year's break, and then we resume with that uh, class or topic matter and then that takes us into March only thing into March then Marie and I have to travel because we go back to Philly where we teach the newer missionary candidates so I'm just you know me I just move at the pace that I move at uh, I would rather get <laughs> sorry uh, <laughs> the Lord created the whole universe in six days um, what um, what I'm saying is I'd rather, in all my teaching, I'd rather we get three chapters really well with questions and good interaction and lane than get 15 with a flyover. Does that make sense? That way, if we, if we can pick it up in the spring or whenever, I'm very happy to do that, Lord willing, you know. Okay. Does that answer your question, so to speak? Okay. Any other questions before we close in prayer? Okay, maybe we'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful day that you've given to us, Lord. We just thank you for the freedom we have in this country to, to come together like this. And, uh, and I just thank you. All the people down through the ages not only died and gave their blood uh, that we can have this freedom that we enjoy in this country, but other people who did that we might have the scriptures in our own language that literally gave their lives, Lord. And to be in this place on Sunday to hear the word of God, to these worship songs, to, to thank you for a gift to the church like Libby Peterson, Lord. We are a thankful people. And so, Lord, as we approach Thanksgiving, Lord, help each one of us uh, to realize that the most important thing in life is relationships. And that first relationship is with our Heavenly Father through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And, and then it's to each other, Lord, starting with our family, our friends, and extending out. So, Lord, bless us, Lord, that we can be a blessing to many. And especially, Lord, bring people into our lives, maybe even this week or during the Christmas holidays, that are part of our Oikos group, that are part of people that know us, and that you would give us opportunities to share uh, a reason for the hope that lies within us. But let us do that with humility and respect for the other person. We thank you for all of these things. We give you all the glory for them in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you all. Happy Thanksgiving. <laughs>